so we have been studying Paul's letter to the Colossians now for a few weeks, and our situation today is focusing on um, how much value there is maturing in Christ. So if you're a believer in Jesus, this message is for you, it is for me. There is something to be had in maturing in Christ. So Moy read those two verses, we're in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Um, it captures sort of the summary or the essence of maturing in Christ, but we're going to look at the entire passage, which goes down to verse 23. Okay, So chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, uh, but again, as disciples in Christ, as learners of Christ, our goal is maturity in Christ. The complication then is that we have serious choices to make that are either going to draw us closer to the Lord or they're going to create distance and fellowship between us and the Lord. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting, right, that, that you fall away from the Lord, but there is distance, right? Sin will harm the relationship that you have between you and, and your Lord. And so the implication then is that we need to learn to see these forks in the road for what they are, right? That they, uh, these choices and these beliefs that we might adopt, that we might hold, have enormous power to shape, right, the patterns and the conduct in your life for good or for evil, right? So what you think... Right, the theology that you hold, right, to be more specific, it will shape you. It will change the way that you behave. And so my position this morning is we need to be laser-focused on what it means for a believer to be united to Christ. Paul uses that term all throughout his letters, that there is a union, right, that the Holy Spirit unites us in some mysterious way to Christ. And so for those of us that have been united to Christ for some period of time, Right? One of the questions you might ask is, do you look more like Jesus now than you did years ago? If you were to ask your spouse right, or your friends, the folks who know you best, and they say, hey, yeah, this person, I can see growth, I can see change, I see grace, I see truth, I see things in process. Or if you ask those who knew you best and said, well, how would you describe Adam? Like, well, he's kind of eccentric, he's got a lot of opinions, he's sort of hard to get along with, right? Are they going to describe other things that have nothing to do with Christ, right? What are your marks? What are you going to be known for? And so I'd ask you to listen to Paul's message here on maturing in Christ, because he was focused on a, on a young church, and I don't mean young in age, but young in faith, folks who were new to the church, who were just getting their footing in what it meant to grow in Christ, because his call for them, his yearning for them to mature... It's the same thing for us, right? That is very much the teaching and the spirit that the apostle had that still is our call today to grow up in Jesus. And so if you take it to heart, right, if we take this passage to heart, I'm convinced the Lord is going to use this to deepen our roots in Christ and has enormous benefits, right, to use that term as we are more grounded, more clear in our thinking, right, more effective for his kingdom call, but in addition to that, it just it glorifies God. God gets glory out of changed lives. Right? The behavior and speech and the things that we say and what we do, they look different. And the only way to account for those differences is because the Spirit's united somebody to Christ and turned them into a little Christ. Right? So we're going to look at this passage in three parts. We'll spend a little bit of time in the background, what was going on in the church. We'll look at the core message that Paul has for this young in faith church. And then we'll ask, well, why does it matter, right? Why are the stakes so high? Okay, background, what's the core message? And then why are the stakes so high around this question? All right, so 
Moy, if you were here last week, Moy explained that there, there was a heresy of some sort going on in the church, right? This is the background. We don't have, no one knows exactly, precisely what was the heresy. We just know that there are symptoms of it described in the passage, right? There's, there are indications that some false teaching is going on. We know that Paul was concerned, right? So his um, disciple, his trainee, if you will, Epaphras, had gone and shared the gospel in Colossae. The church had been formed, folks had come to Christ, and then Paul gets this message back from Epaphras that there's something wrong, right? Something out of step with the gospel that's being taught. And so that's Paul's heart, never having been there, having met these people, but he's writing a letter trying to get these folks grounded in Christ, That's his heart as a pastor, as an apostle. That's what he wants for them. He wants them to understand what does it mean for you to be in Christ individually, but then as a church, corporately, what does it mean for us to be in a church together? That's what he wants them to grasp. And so he begins by making a very clear distinction between this heresy and the reality, which is Christ himself. So if you've got your Bible open, look at verses 16 and 18. First thing he says in 16, don't let anyone judge you, right? Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or even a Sabbath. And then in verse 18, if you jump down there just a bit, let no one disqualify you. And he goes on to give some more indications of what the heresy was. Uh, But his words here very clearly, don't let anybody judge you. Don't let anybody disqualify you. Right? Because the assertion that was coming from these false teachers is that they were being judged. Right? The people were being judged by these false teachers. They were making the case that God's judgment is going to fall on you if you don't do these things. Right? If you are not um, given to, right? if you haven't embraced these things, these human philosophies around new moons, festivals, observing the Sabbath the way that someone thinks it needs to happen, that you are not in that you are not truly right with the Lord without these things, and God's judgment's gonna fall on you. That's something of the heresy that's being taught. And so Paul starts with his message and says, absolutely not. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you. Just don't give it, you know, don't give it an inch. Paul's point, right, with these things, particularly the, the new moons, the, the Sabbaths, the, the rituals around eating and drinking, that at their very best, if you give it their most charitable interpretation, is that they are just shadows of the reality of Christ. So if you think about the Old Testament law, right, there's a little bit of a Jewish mix, maybe, in some of this heresy, that if you kept the law, if you kept the Sabbath, that's what was necessary to be right with God. And so... He makes the point in another letter as well that, guess what? You can't keep the law, right? God gave the law. God was right and just and good in giving the law. So if you try it on for days or years or months, you begin to figure out there's, there's just no way. I can't keep this up. And if this is what it takes to be right with God and I can't do it, I have a problem. That's the foreshadowing of Christ. Does that make sense? I like to think of this image, and if it doesn't help you, discard it. This is just my image. But if you had sort of God in the back radiating glory before Jesus comes to the earth, you have Christ standing in front of the Lord, and then the shadow that's cast in the form of the law for people to understand. There's a holy God, and there's a lot of rules, and I'm not going to get there. It's a desperate place. That's Paul's point here. 
best case scenario, any of this stuff that anyone is gonna hold out to you in terms of traditions, in terms of law, in terms of rules and regulations, best case scenario, it might point you a little bit towards the Lord. That's it. That's it. I also think of Moses coming down from the mountain in a slightly different angle. But if you remember in the Old Testament, he was up on Mount Sinai. He met with the Lord. God gives him the Ten Commandments. Moses comes back down the mountain. You remember uh, radiating the God, the glory of God. And he had to veil himself. And so he brings these Ten Commandments that are being broken as they were written, right? What's going on in the, uh, the Israelite camp is chaos. Um, and so the, the law comes down, right? You even see sort of the shining on Moses' face, but none of those things are God himself, right? They're pointers at best, the law or the way that Moses looked, right? That, that radiance, they're just pointing back to the Lord. Verse 18, we get a little bit more detail on some of the forms of this teaching, and this is where it gets even weirder, where people start to wonder, well, maybe it's not just sort of a Jewish influence, Maybe there's some paganism. Maybe there's some other weird, weird things going on. And part of the reason for that is Colossae was at a crossroads, and there were a lot of folks coming and going. And so you would get all sorts of mixed ideas coming, right, from travelers. But in verse 18, he talks about asceticism, just being extremely hard on your body physically. So not just fasting, but really, really harsh treatment. You know, I don't know. Some people would sort of whip themselves. Harshness, right? Some, for some reason, there's something to be gained, that's the thought, right? If you're terribly harsh on your body with asceticism and with fasting, angel worship, you need some of that, right? To join in with worshiping angels in order to approach God. Um, and what's the last one here? Oh, visions, right? Maybe some of these things, if you're, if you're hungry, if you're physically out of sorts and you've altered your state of mind, then maybe you're going to create some vision for yourself to enter into this next level of intimacy with God, right? It's a weird sort of influence, and it's got to be confusing, right? It's a little bit hard for us to put ourselves in that place, right, to be new to the faith, to not have any background, and to be moved, right, to, to be sort of unsettled or, or confused or just misled through some of this teaching. Uh, this came home to me, though, a little bit when I went with Mike on one of these trips to Africa. Uh, we've been to Malawi and Tanzania, and uh, wonderfully warm people. Wonderfully, and some of you have been, right? It's a wonderful place. And there's an enormous hunger for the gospel in that culture, in that place. Could speculate why it is, but it's a fact. They love to hear the gospel. Almost all of them respond in faith when you sit down and share the gospel with them. Uh, there's no skepticism. There, there's just excitement, joy at the idea of coming close to the Lord. And so on the one hand, that's an enormous blessing, right? That they come to the Lord easily. That same sort of eagerness doesn't go away the moment that they come to Christ. They remain open to influence. And so we would run into that. Other folks, uh, you know, had been in the area teaching other things. And so you get this weird mix, right? This half-baked theology that's not biblical. And so there's an enormous need for training and for grounding and for biblical discipleship for them to mature in Christ. Right? And these are important things, right? This is the heart of these people's faith. It's the heart of our faith. And I just was shocked, having no connection, how easily folks could be swayed. Right? And I saw it firsthand in that culture. That's, I think, why Paul takes this so seriously. These folks haven't grown up in Sunday school, 
right? They've got a crazy mix of things in the back of their mind. They've come to Christ. They sort of got off on the right foot, and now someone is pushing them in the wrong direction, and that can be ruinous, right? That can, that can just taint right, the rest of someone's life. And so that's the background, right? That's why this message that he's about to give them matters so much. Is they got off on the right foot, and they need to understand and hold on to the fact that maturing in Christ, growing in Christ, doesn't come through the addition of something other than Christ. Right? So to, to say that it's Christ plus is actually Christ minus. Does that make sense? Right? That when you layer on different things as sort of the necessary next step, you diminish the Lord. Right? So it's not trivial. It's not academic. Right? It matters. And that's why he cares. So that's background. Now let's look at the core of his message. And he said it a little bit. We've touched on this in verse 9. Ultimate reality, right? The substance, the reality, it belongs to Christ. He is ultimate reality. He is the substance to which some other things may point, but it's all about him. He goes on, right, in this indictment, right, this rejection or this opposition to this false teaching that's going on, um, he uses them to say what they are not is how you get to maturity. It's sort of an interesting structure, right? So he's going to describe what they are not in order to help people understand what maturity is. So he says in verse 19, if you want to look at that, let no one disqualify you, right? These are the folks who would say, hey, judgment's coming. You don't have your act together. Something's wrong. So he's speaking of those people. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Where'd it go? Um, because they are not holding fast to the head. And so if we pause just with that little term, uh, these folks are beginning to drift, right? They are not connected to the head who is Christ, those are scary words, right? Paul is very judicious in the words that he uses. He's very specific with his meaning. and says, these folks, they are not connected to the head, right? They're losing that connection. They're losing that closeness. And that's what Christian maturity is, right? That's the only way it can occur. So that's the first thing. And, and Paul's going to build out this whole, he uses the, uh, the metaphor that's probably familiar with a, uh, a body, right? Christ is the head. We are the body. He's going to use that image here. But the first thing is that these teachers, having lost their connection, they have no way to grow in holiness, no way to grow in Christ because he's the source, because he is the authority. Right? So that's the first thing. Christ being the head of the church, he is our authority, he is our source of life, and it is only, always, by holding on to him, not something else, by holding on to him that we receive nourishment, right? that we receive depth, that our, our thinking changes, we begin to grow. We begin to understand his truth and scripture more by giving ourselves to him, not these other things. If you find yourself beginning to look for nourishment in the form of instruction or teaching or some other philosophy, because he's the head, that's where the nourishment is, the only other thing you're going to find is atrophy. Right, if you're pursuing whatever else it happens to be. And we slide into this, whether it's, you know, I don't know, speakers, books, podcasts. If, we're, if that's our go-to right, to these other sources, and we are not giving ourselves regularly, daily to Christ, it's like stepping away from the source of your nourishment 
inviting atrophy and weakness. I think a little bit like a prisoner of war. You've probably seen some of these pictures of folks that are not nourished the way they should be. Their body is diminished. They're weak. They're ineffective. That's where the path of these other sources of sustenance lead, disconnected from their source. Second, this picture of the body that Paul gives, right? maturity is slow. It's a slow process. I think, again, kind of sticking with this picture of the body, if you think about the moment of conception, human conception, right? there's a, there's a fertilized egg. It slowly begins to kind of turn into a blob and it begins to take shape. Eventually you get to the bones and the sinews and the tendons that Paul talks about. And eventually you have a, an infant. Right? But what the infant looks like when it's born, incredibly different than what it looks like when it starts. But it's, it's the absolute right progression right, of where life starts. Does that make sense? Then if you continue that on, say, okay, I had an infant. Now I've got, I have an 18-year-old son that's taller than I am. He's in better shape than I am. So he probably looks a little better than I do. Right? But the, the progression from conception to birth to maturity for a human, it looks different. It takes shape. It doesn't resemble what it started out as, but it's absolutely the fulfillment of what it started out as. But that takes time, right? Maturity is slow, and things begin to change. And your shape and your character and your whole persona ought to look different as you mature, as I mature. None of that's possible when you begin to separate yourself from the head, right? There's no way for a body to mature apart from its head. Now, remember also, Paul is addressing a church, right? A gathering, a collection of believers. It's not just one person that he's writing this, head, or this letter to. So we all share the same head, Christ. He is our Lord. But each of us that have been united to him, right, we begin to fill out his body, Arms, legs, feet, toes, different aspects of the body and the image that he uses. Um, Some of us are joints, some of us are tendons, right? That would be kind of a fun thing. Some of us are warts. No, kidding, right? But there are different parts of the body, right? And Christian maturity occurs because the body is united the way it's designed to be under its head, right? So there's a corporate reality to growth and to maturity that cannot be had apart from the head or apart from the body. You have to be here doing this in each other's homes, right? In each other's lives. I joke a lot about coffee. For some reason, there's a lot of coffee involved, right? As we get together, But uh, one of the things, frankly, one of the the new, or, or sort of the tale of COVID, right? Is just this comfort with being online and watching videos and I'm kind of podcasts and, you know, I know those people, but they're not here. That's error, right? We need each other to grow up in Christ and it's his body that he's growing, right? So if you self-select out of that, you're putting yourself in error, right? You're weakening yourself and you're working against God's design in Christ for a mature body. The ligaments, the tendons, the muscles, the joints, we hold each other sort of in place, and I can't imagine what I would be like if I were a bachelor and I didn't have a wife, you know, shaping me the way I need to be shaped. I mean, how much more so in a church like this? 
Right? We do it. We bear each other's burdens. We pray for each other. Uh, we correct each other. We speak into each other's lives. Right? We probably get on each other's nerves a little bit. But that rough and tumble, right? Spirit-led, leaning into Christ under the authority of the word, it's what shapes us. It's what changes us. And that's why, you know, the egg eventually looks like a mature body, right? As we give ourselves to that process. You know, some of you uh, may have seen or may have noticed uh, my son, Sam, here. This is the, the younger son, who's also taller than I am. Um, you know, unfortunately, he's the one on crutches right now. He uh, just happened to tear his ACL playing basketball. Um, that's a bummer, right? You miss basketball. Um, he, you know, kind of shuffles, but he's not running, jumping, occasionally dunking, right, the way that he was before. And that's a shame, right? Now, Lord willing, strength and healing will come, right? There's surgery down the road. But his strength and his athleticism have been diminished because the tendon's been snapped, right? I think that's a fair picture. When Paul uses this language back in verse uh, 19, right, we're all connected to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows, right? We need the attachment that we have for one another. And if you snap that off, Somebody may have to hand you a pair of crutches, right? You're going to shuffle, right? You're going to have pain. You're not going to run and jump and dunk the way that you've been designed, right? You need healthy connections, joints, sinews knitted together, right? Hopefully that's not controversial. But what I find to be a little tougher is actually giving myself to it, right? Accepting the correction occasionally from a brother or a sister, Right. rearranging my schedule or my habits or my preferences in order to foster the community that we have to have. That's where the real choices come in. To say, no, 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 I'm busy. I'm not going to do that. This is kind of what I've got going on. Okay. You're making a choice. And it doesn't have the effect of pressing you into the body and ultimately further into Christ. Yeah. Notice the end here in verse 19 where the strength and the growth comes from, and maybe it's obvious, right? We're all knit together, and we grow with a growth that is from God. God is the one. He is the source. He gives the growth. It can't be manufactured through something else that people, that humans, create. So in the context of the church there, things like keeping the Sabbath or tracing the lunar cycle or having these visions, doing all these sort of weird, strange things. You cannot manufacture holiness and growth in Christ through these other channels. Can't do it. They're man-made. God himself gives the growth. Same for us, right? Whatever the distractions are, wherever we're giving ourselves our time and our energy, if it's something outside of Christ and something outside of his scriptures that fills our time, which may not be evil, but it is not going to be a source of your maturity in Christ. So don't dismiss that. Don't dismiss that, right? We are called to this maturity. Don't squander it. Don't miss it. Because you have a pet preference or a pet peeve that pushes you in a different direction. We have to hold on to him tenaciously. 
you know, here's the thing, right? As we become more and more familiar with Christ, right, and with the Father through Christ, and we see his glory, it begins to change us. Um, Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthian church. And in that letter, he drew a parallel between, um, again, the same account where Moses went up the mountain and he beheld God in all of his glory and he was changed, right? That's where the, the radiance came from. He had to put on the veil. He was changed. And so Paul adapts that and says the same thing is at work in our lives, believers, right, in Christ, that as you behold the Lord's glory, it changes you. Right. So I'm going to read this, and you don't need to turn. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. These are Paul's words. As we all, who with unveiled faces, we're not even veiled, unveiled faces. As we contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. That word contemplate is a good one, right? You take some time to think about it, right? to meditate on his scripture, to sort of suss out the implications of his character. Right? You contemplate it. And then some translations have the word reflect instead of contemplate, but they kind of go together. As you contemplate, as you absorb, as you think about the Lord and all of his excellencies, his righteousness, his holiness, his mercy, his goodness, and his wisdom, his providence. Right? As I contemplate that, I begin, Lord willing, to reflect a little bit of that. And so if you go back to the question I started with, when people look at you and have known you for decades, have you changed? Are you reflecting a little bit more of the Lord's glory now? There are ups and downs for sure. I'm not talking about perfectionism. But we are called to behold the Lord's glory because he's worth it and because we need it, right? Because we're going to be changed Right, to use another word that you may be familiar with, that's what sanctification is. As we press into the Lord, we understand his character through his word, through his spirit applying the word to us, and we change. So I don't, I don't know about you, but I want, I want more of that. Right? I want more of God's glory in my life. I want to act and I want to talk and I want to sound a little bit more like Jesus. Right, I want to make him known. This is the reflection. I want to contemplate and then I want to reflect um, so that people can experience the same thing that I have, right? That's our call. That's what Paul is holding out. Say, hey, this maturity in Christ, it's, it's for you. Why would you trifle with these other things? Right? And the good news here is that this accords naturally with what Jesus said. Do you remember in John chapter 10 when Jesus explained why he'd come? He said, the, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I've come that they, may, they might have life. And then he sort of spikes the football and that they can have it abundantly. Right? That his, his intent for us in taking on flesh and suffering God's penalty in the crucifixion and in the resurrection, he gets glory out of that for sure. But his intent for us was that we get caught up in his life. 
And that because we participate with him in death and in resurrection, right, that's the union we have through the Spirit. That goodness and that fullness, that overflowing vitality, we, we get to taste it. Right? Jesus said this to the woman at the well. If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for water. Right? You're going to be thirsty again, but if you drink with the water that I give, it's a river of life and you'll never thirst again. Why would we squander that? Why would we not make use of that? There's a benefit for sure, but you're also being disobedient if you don't. Right? You're, you're effectively telling the Lord, I've got a better idea. I know what you are. This is better, Lord. I'll take the salvation. This is better. Right? Do, you, do you understand like, how blasphemous that is? Right. What a precious truth that we are called to this abundant life in Christ. That's his core message to the church. In Colossae, that's his core message to us. Now, why does it matter? And I've kind of hinted at some of this, but what, why are the stakes so high around this concept of maturity? At one level, maturity is kind of obvious. Why wouldn't we want to be mature? But let's track with Paul on his rationale, right, on why it's important. Um, he's addressing, as I've said, a young church, young in faith, and by definition, a church is made up of believers, those who have professed faith in Christ. And what's scary here is that includes the teachers. That's scary. Right. Um, when you look at verse 19, he described, I said this earlier, he describes the teachers as beginning to drift and to lose the connection and the proximity that they had to Christ. And not only are they drifting, they're doing it to others too. It's interesting to me that Paul doesn't call them out, as he does elsewhere, as wolves in sheep's clothing. He doesn't question their salvation in this passage. Right? But he observes that this drift starts with the teachers. They're now doing damage to the rest of the church, pushing people, creating the distance that sin creates between believers and their Lord. Right? The fellowship is at a low point. And the way that Paul addresses this is he asks them a question, essentially, why would you listen to these guys? Why would you listen to them? Um, that's the point in verse 20. If you want to look at that verse, depending on your translation, it starts with an if or a since. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to those regulations? Uh, so the if here is inviting these folks who are reading the letter, say, if, yeah, if I'm identified with Christ, if I've placed my, well, of course I have. But what's the implication, right? That's the reason for Paul kind of throwing out the question the way that he frames it with a sense or an if is to understand, okay, if this is true, then what does it imply? That's the nature of the question he's asking here. Say, if you have started off in this relationship with the Lord Jesus where it's all about him and it's by faith and it's by his grace and that's it, if that's all true, why would you do this? Why would you start reaching for other crutches, other philosophies, other preferences, other things to diminish Christ? And he wants them to come to that on their own. 
at, I, you know, just as an aside, next time you're in a disagreement or a question with somebody or a conversation with them, it's one thing to say, you're wrong, I'm right. It's another thing to say, well, why do you, why do you think that? Right? And in good faith, right, if the Spirit's working, questions can sometimes be a little more effective to kind of break the mental logjam. That's what Paul's doing. Right? He's being gentle with this church that he loves, and he wants their maturity, and he wants them to understand. Think about what you're doing. How did this relationship begin? Why would you look for anything other than faith alone in Christ alone? Why would you look for these other things? He points out that given who Christ is, just the all-satisfying Savior that he is, that there is no man-made holiness to be had through any other channel. And that's the list of things in verses 21 to 23. And you can kind of get a little bit of Paul's scorn in this. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, right? They're quoted. Yeah, those are the rules, Right? Why would you listen to all of those things according to human precepts and teaching? They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So when you have this and one, right? I'm going to abide by the Jewish law. I'm going to engage in some sort of self-harm. Right? I'm, I'm going to pursue these visions. I'm going to do these other things plus Christ. You say, you know, like at first glance to the uninformed, to the immature, right, where these church, these, uh, this young church was, okay, that kind of sounds religious. Okay, I can, I can, you know, I know people in other faiths, they do some weird things, they're hard on themselves. That's the veneer of wisdom that he's talking about here. And Paul says, you've got to strip that back. They're absolutely useless in promoting holiness and maturity in Christ. And he says that in the negative, they have no utility for stopping sinful indulgence. So if you want to grow in Christ, you can't have this plus one mentality. These other things that you want to lean on, right, that are a little more controllable, a little more human, a little bit more me-centered, none of that's going to press you in to the Lord. You know, in fact, the reverse is true. That's what you see with these teachers, right? That they've kind of adopted these things. They're not growing in their maturity. They're actually working against it. That's just a scary thought, right? That if we chase these rabbit trails, it has the effect of pushing not only yourself, but others away, right? Creating this division. They're actually isolating themselves from a healthy church, right? Centered on Christ, and so this kind of all boils down for me, at least, to, there's one question I think it's important for us to ask. Have you diminished the Christ of the scriptures by elevating something else to an unhealthy place? And if you think about what it means to grow in Christ and to be mature, what advice are you giving to other people? How are you behaving? Right? What would your checkbook and your calendar reveal about where you're investing. Does that make sense? Like, where are you actually giving yourself to? And is it too much? Is it unhealthy? Or are you giving yourself fully and regularly to Christ? That's where maturity is going to come from. So I don't don't know, right, anyone's heart but my own. 
And even then, I'm not that good at it, right? I need the Spirit's help. But I do know the types of things that the human heart is prone to. Uh, Manipulating a conversation so that I'm one-upping somebody else. Is that a thread? Is that a theme in your life that every time you're in a conversation, somehow it comes back to your stories, your accomplishments, what's on your mind, what's on your agenda, what you're doing? There's a thread that runs through it. It's just, here, I'm going to kind of tell you more about me. When's the last time you asked what's going on in someone's life with a view, right, to turning it to a gospel conversation, or are you just coming in with more stories about you? Right? Am I just wanting to elevate and one-up myself? Maybe I'm just sort of rationalizing and explaining sinful tendencies in my own life. That's the way I was raised. That's kind of the way I've done it. If you didn't know my parents, you'd, you'd understand. Right? That's just the way we do things around here. So habit, Christ, as opposed to Christ changing the habit. Right, things like physical fitness, things like managing your finances as well. Those are both good things. They can become ultimate things, right? Where we pursue money, we pursue fitness, they become ultimate. Maybe you're just walking around with a lot of strange ideas about heaven and hell and Christ and salvation, and you've really never taken the time to reconcile them with Scripture. If somebody asks, well, why do you believe that? You know, where does Scripture teach that? I don't know. That's just what I believe. Right? Again, habit, tradition, inertia, scripture. Right? The order has got to get straightened out. Whatever it might be, and it looks different for all of us, Christ has called each of us, he said, make disciples of all men. Right? That word disciple means that we're learning. We are learning more about him as we walk with him. And under his word and under his spirit, that learning seeps all the way through, and you have to change, right? None of us, none of us started as mature Christians. So if you're not changing, right, if, if that would not be the feedback from those who know you best, that's concerning, right? We should be asking ourselves, do we see the work of the Lord? And do others see the work of the Lord? Again, not perfection. Let's be transparent on sin and weakness and struggles. We need each other. But there should be a trend, right? From conception to maturity. And it should be looking different. But if it's not, right? If you're stuck in a ditch somewhere and your life looks the same way it did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there is nothing different, then I would suggest to you, you, you may have something spiritually damaged lodged in your heart, right? There is something askew, right? There is something wrong if you're a believer and you name Christ as your Savior and you haven't grown. Your life doesn't look any different. That's a problem, right? Christ said you'll know them by their fruits. Right? And so it's, it's damaging for us and it's, it's going to have an effect, right? Here, these teachers were damaging others in the church. If you've got a vice of some sort that you've held on to for decades, likely it's damaging your family, Likely, it's a hindrance for a friendship somewhere, right? That's the nature of sin, is it just taints everything, right? So these are not just, yeah, you know, be mature in Christ. Yay, go Jesus, we'll be back next week. Like, this, this, it matters. 
That's why Paul calls us here. Don't squander the maturity that Christ holds out to you, that he holds out to me through some other philosophy, some other preference. Don't squander that. All right, so I'm gonna give you a few minutes to pray. I'm gonna pray as well. Uh, my suggestion to you, right, just spend a few minutes asking the Lord to search your heart. If there's something that you need to confess to him, do it. If there happens to be something between you and another believer in the room, maybe you wanna go say something to him or find her after the service. Right? But deal with the damage, deal with the error. Be cleansed, be healed. Right? Be brought in to the right path of growth and maturity. So let's just take a few time or a few minutes here. Uh, if you want to pray with an elder, I'll ask them to gather in the back of the room. They'll be available. We're just going to take three, four, five minutes of silence, ask the Spirit to work, and then I'll close. Okay? Father, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for the truth and the grace that are mixed together in such perfect measure in your word and ultimately in Jesus who came speaking truth and grace. And so, Lord, the stakes are high. And we just ask for your spirit to do a work among us now in these few minutes. Uh, shine a light on sin, on growth, where we need to go. Lord, and glorify yourself. Reveal some of your glory to us that we might take on some of those characteristics now in these few minutes. Lord, we thank you for the effectiveness of your word. It is sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it divides joint and marrow. Lord, it sees us to the quick and to what's true. Lord, you know the things that we can't even identify in our own heart yet. And so we just ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to lead us to repentance and confession of sin, to obedience and faithful growth, maybe to restoring relationships. But Lord, to deal with whatever holds us back from growing in maturity in our precious Lord Jesus. And as good as it is for us, we want to give him glory of a changed life. Because you, Lord Jesus, are worth it. We don't have anything to give that you need, but you are worthy of a life that is obedient and worshipful. So that's our heart. That's our cry this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.